During the fall of 2022, we will study Amos, Jonah, Hosea, and Micah. The goal of this episode is to help you get some historical context about the times in which these four men lived. In some respects, the 8th century BC was the greatest of times for ancient Israel. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah had experienced a resurgency of prosperity and expansion. Both Jeroboam II of the Northern Kingdom and Uzziah of the Southern Kingdom reclaimed territory, expanded trade, and enjoyed relative peace. Arguably, Israel's greatest day since Solomon occurred during this time. Jeroboam II ascended to Israel's throne in 793 BC and reigned 41 years. Those years became some of the most prosperous times for the Northern Kingdom. The resurgence actually began during the reign of Jeroboam's father, Jehoash. At the beginning of his reign, Assyria crushed Aram, or Syria, and imposed a nominal domination on Israel for a brief time. But their internal weakness prevented Assyria from any further imperialistic actions. Coming to power nearly the same time, Uzziah's rule of Judah eased a rivalry between the two nations. Uzziah and Israel's King Jeroboam II had enough wisdom to avoid warfare between the two nations. The weakness of not only Assyria, but also of Egypt and Syria in the first half of the 8th century made it possible for Uzziah to control the overland trade routes, including the coastal highway and the king's highway. King Uzziah ushered in the time of prosperity without parallel for both the north and southern kingdom. It was a time of optimism and luxury. The economy of each nation thrived. With Egypt no longer a world power, they were ineffective to influence the region. Under Jeroboam, the national boundary of the Northern Kingdom was expanded to its historical limits. They took this as a sign of divine favor. Considering the political stability and economic prosperity of the latter half of the eighth century, one might expect spiritual conditions for a revival. But this peace had a dark side. The freedom from invasion and the economic boom led to an attitude of greed and selfishness. Commerce boomed, deceitful business practices increased profits, blatant deceptions such as falsifying weights and perverting justice with bribes left the poor without any influence. Cheating, corruption, excessive rents, and religious idolatry took a moral and spiritual toll on God's people. Property was confiscated from the small landowners. Corruption, bribery, and debt slavery were the norm. The religious situation mirrored the social hypocrisy. While the rich added to the burden of the poor, the ritual of worship continued as usual. The masses flocked to worship centers for festivals and sacrifices. Yet Hebrew worship was filled with pagan elements adopted from the surrounding Canaanite religions. Countless high places, as they were called, or local sanctuaries, gave rise to variant forms of worship, including ritual prostitution. What should have been a high point in the history of God's people was actually a low point. In their selfish blindness, 
God's people forgot that they had obligations to humanity. Their worship, it had form, but it lacked substance. It was ritualistic, devoid of repentance and genuineness. The religious and political leaders of the day did little to denounce Israel's immorality. Even as God consistently acted to draw his people back towards him, the prophet Amos specifically mentioned a history of conflict, food shortages, drought, and recurrent plagues, as the Lord used these circumstances to get Israel's attention, but to no avail. Unfortunately, while the southern kingdom enjoyed occasional revivals under godly leaders, the residents of Judah were often no better than their brothers to the north. Because of its location and lucrative trade routes, Israel became an attractive target for imperial powers and fears of an Assyrian military campaign increased anxiety among the people. In addition, the Northern Kingdom experienced decades of smaller military outbreaks with neighboring Syria. After King Jeroboam II's death in 753, king after king felt assassination or defeat by a foreign power. Jeroboam's son, reigned only six months before he was assassinated. That king would reign one month before he was assassinated. The next king would become a vassal leader underneath Assyria's King Tiglath-Pileser. When he died, his son ascended to the throne. And then after two years, one of his military commanders, Pekah, assassinated him. Pekah would eventually rebel against Assyria. And in 732, Hoshua, evidently with Assyrian aid, killed him and became Israel's next and ultimately last king. So thus in about 20 years, seven kings in five different dynasties ruled Israel. When Hashua rebelled and attempted an alliance with Egypt, Shalmaneser V marched on Israel and besieged the capital city of Samaria for three years. Samaria fell in 722, and the northern kingdom came to its end. Within that same approximate 35-year time period, Judah faced three national crises of their own, any of which could have led to their own destruction. The first involved Israel's King Pekah. He and Syria's King Reason recognized the danger posed by the rise of Assyria. They formed a military alliance against Assyria, and they had tried to coax King Ahaz of Judah to join the alliance. King Ahaz, though, refused to join and instead requested assistance from Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser III was eager to accept, but it came with a price. Ahaz depleted his treasuries and stripped the temple to supply the tribute required. Additionally, Judah became a vassal state of Assyria. The second crisis became known as the Ashdod Rebellion. As the Egyptian empire surged, several vassal nations of Assyria organized a rebellion against Assyria's King Sargon II. The inhabitants of Ashdod spearheaded this insurrection. They invited King Hezekiah to join them. However, he followed Isaiah's counsel and trusted God instead. Sargon II acted with swift and lethal force, shattering the rebellion and leaving Judah alone. The third crisis happened in 704 BC 
when Sennacherib succeeded Sargon II. Hezekiah led Judah to rebel against Assyria, causing Sennacherib to march towards Judah. Hezekiah realized his mistake, but Sennacherib refused to be appeased by any bribes, and he besieged King Hezekiah and Jerusalem. Isaiah advised Hezekiah that because of the Assyrians' taunting of God, Sennacherib would never capture Jerusalem. God intervened, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers perished in a single night, causing Sennacherib to retreat. He would reign an additional 20 years, but he never returned to Jerusalem. In a context that mixed prosperity within godliness, God's faithful prophets called both Judah and Israel to task for their wayward actions. Amos and Hosea preached to the northern kingdom of Israel, or Samaria, while Micah ministered primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah. 2 Kings 14 verse 25 places Jonah squarely in the northern kingdom of the 8th century, but the setting for his recorded ministry likely occurred later and was focused on the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Along with these four men, Isaiah also served as a prophet during this time period. Amos has often been called the prophet of justice. He criticized urban elites who drink wine by the bowlful and anointed themselves with expensive oils. Because the Israelites loved injustice, Amos predicted a period of intense judgment, which he called the day of the Lord. He promised that Israel would pay for her sins and that those living a life of ease and security were about to be on the other end of the stick. They would never get a chance to live in their fancy homes, nor drink the wine from their vineyards that they had planted. Hosea, a contemporary of Amos, also ministered in the northern kingdom, although some of his messages targeted Judah as well. For Hosea, Israel's problems were rooted in their unfaithfulness. Like an adulterous spouse, Israel had gone after other gods and abandoned her first love. Hosea spoke on behalf of God as one betrayed by the unfaithfulness of his own people, a people he had lovingly led out of Egypt into a place that they could call home. Hosea not only proclaimed a message, but he also became the message. Under God's direction, he married a woman who turned out to be unfaithful to him. Despite that betrayal, he pursued her, reclaimed her as his own, and reconciled with her. Micah, whose name can be translated as a rhetorical question, who is like the Lord, or as a statement, the Lord, the incomparable, ministered to the regions around Jerusalem and witnessed many of the same problems that plagued Samaria. Using courtroom metaphors, Micah presented what amounts to a class action lawsuit against God's people. Along with idolatry, Jerusalem's crimes included bloodshed, injustice, and perversion. All were declared guilty as charged, and the divine sentence ensured that God would send disaster. Jonah experienced God's compassion for himself, yet he refused to extend that same compassion to his enemies. Then as he witnessed God's mercy firsthand, he resented the Lord for doing so. The abiding message of Jonah is that God's grace is not just for us, but for them as well. 
all four of these prophetic books end with a message of God's forgiveness and restoration. In Jonah, Nineveh was spared because the people turned from their evil ways. In Amos, future harvest would be so plentiful that a plowman would overtake the reaper and God would restore David's fallen tent. In Hosea, Israel will blossom like a vine as God heals the people's wayward hearts. And in Micah, God lets go of his anger, passing over rebellion and burying his people's sins in the depths of the sea. The New Testament depends heavily on these books. For example, Jesus used Jonah's experience to describe his own death and resurrection. Micah famously predicted that a ruler would be born in Bethlehem, and it would be his words that would be passed on to the wise men who followed the star. Matthew also pointed back to Hosea to explain Jesus's time in Egypt. At the Council of Jerusalem, James quoted the promise of Amos 9 that David's fallen tent would be rebuilt. In Romans 9, Paul quoted Hosea as well to describe how the Gentiles had become a part of God's family. In Acts 7, Stephen quoted directly from Amos 5 to vindicate God's judgment. So these books provide a beautiful bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. As we study these books, at least six different themes will emerge that we should note. First of all, God set standards for his people that focus on living a life that reflects a relationship with him. That life is not about keeping rituals, but about a genuine, trusting relationship with him. That relationship is seen in how those who relate to him treat others and live their lives. Anything else is empty and meaningless. The second thing we'll see is that God compassionately calls people to himself. God gave Jonah a second opportunity, just as he did the Ninevites, a city of Gentiles. The challenges faced by the Israelites were disciplinary actions, taking to get their attention so that they would return to God. A third theme we will find is that we find acceptance when we repent. God takes joy in his people returning to him. Just like the prodigal son in the New Testament, God is portrayed welcoming back to the foe those who generally repent and turn to him. A fourth theme is that God offers redemption through his son. In these books, we hear about a shepherd king born in an insignificant city who would restore the tent of David and rule forever. A fifth theme is that a better day is coming. Each book reminds us of this better day. We face judgment because of our sin, and the future looks bleak as a result. But God is raising up a people marked by faith in him that will securely live with him in eternity. A sixth theme, we are invited to tell others about God's redemption found through faith in his son. These were unlikely deliverers of God's message. We are reminded that God can and does use everyday people to deliver his message. Most of us may wonder what we can do to point our world towards Jesus, especially in a culture that confuses prosperity with religion. 
We may think that our everyday jobs, our imperfect relationships, or our humble backgrounds prevent us from being a voice that calls people to Jesus. In Amos, Jonah, Hosea, and Micah, we find four ordinary men whom God used in extraordinary ways. Amos was a shepherd who understood the need for sheep to obediently follow the shepherd. Jonah was a reluctant voice used by God despite his prejudices and bitterness. Hosea's painful family life became his message. Who else could have understood the impact of sin or what the grace behind forgiveness looked like better than him? And Micah was from a rural area, what we might call the country. But he would point towards the perfect king who would come from another nondescript village, the town of Bethlehem. These men remind us that God takes sin seriously, and it cannot and will not be ignored. They also remind us that God offers forgiveness to those who turn to him in repentance. As we study the messages of these four men, we will understand our need to turn to God. We'll also understand that God can use us to call our world back to him. We look forward to walking with you through the books of Amos, Jonah, Hosea, and Micah during these next few months.